morning. And no, I'm not doing a Mother's Day message. I never do. So uh, we're just going to press on in our our study. We're doing an overview of the Bible, um, kind of an ambitious undertaking, um, but we're trying to do it in a short amount of time, a few months rather than many years. And um, so we've already started with kind of a 35,000 foot view of the Bible, and we did that in one or two sermons, and now we're kind of walking through the Bible in big, big chunks. And Well, not yet we're not, but uh, we're still in Genesis right now, And uh, but after today, we will be in, uh, we'll, next Sunday we'll finish the book of Genesis and position us to kind of march through the Old Testament fairly quickly. So those of you who are able, we're going to stand with me. We're going to read from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you and in you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we are So grateful to you, Lord, that you would save sinners like us, that you would stage a rescue operation to retrieve and to set free the captives or those of us who are captive, Lord, because we've been in rebellion against you. Lord, I can't even begin to fathom, we can't begin to fathom, Lord, your your love for us, that you would even do that. But we thank you, Lord, that you have loved us with an everlasting love. And you have determined, Lord, to make us your people, to bring us under your rule, that we might enjoy your blessings. So, Lord, encourage us today, we pray, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You all can be seated. So, as I mentioned, we're making progress in our study to get an overview of the Bible. And we began a few weeks ago as we looked at Genesis chapter 1 and 2 with the pattern of the kingdom, uh, the pattern which God established at creation. Everything was perfect. Man and woman had a perfect relationship with God. They had a perfect relationship with each other. They had a perfect relationship with creation. Everything was good. It was life as it was meant to be. And then... Adam and Eve rebelled against God and ruined everything. And Genesis chapter 3 captures that rebellion. And chapter 3 ends with God escorting Adam and Eve out of his presence, out of the garden, out of the very place that he had created for them to have communion and fellowship with him, this perfect place, and they are driven out of it. I don't know about you, but you know, questions run through my mind. Can you imagine the shame that they must have experienced? Well, we know that there was shame because when they sinned, they, they hid themselves, Right? From God, and and that's the natural response to, uh, you know, to to sin, is that 
We feel shame. We're embarrassed. We're humiliated by that. We're disappointed in ourselves, and we, we hide ourselves. And you remember, they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves up. And so can you imagine, though, the shame as God is escorting them out of the garden and the disappointment, the discouragement that they, that they must have experienced there? And can you imagine the questions that they must have been wrestling with as they, as they were, you know, this is all they've ever known, right, was this perfect experience, this perfect relationship with God and with one another and with creation. That's all they had known. And now they've sinned, they've rebelled against God, They've committed treason, right? Trying to overthrow the king, the sovereign king of the universe, and to claim their own kingdom. This is no small thing. But now they're about ready to experience a life that they, they have no idea what's before them. And the questions that they must have been wrestling with. What, what, if, what if we had driven the serpent out of the garden? What, what if we hadn't listened to his lies? What if we hadn't let him deceive us? What if we hadn't eaten the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What if we hadn't committed treason? What if we had simply obeyed and trusted God? Man, what, what's life going to be like now under the curse? Well, you know the story when you get to chapter 4. It didn't take long for them to find out, did it, what life was going to be like. They soon found out the horrible pain caused by their sin. And there they are. They've had two children Cain, the oldest, Abel, the youngest, and now they're standing at the grave of one of their children, Abel, and they're burying their son, burying him in the, in the earth, reclaimed by the very earth that was supposed to bring forth life, right? Right? Man, how their hearts must have just been ripped out. It's, and, and, and you can imagine them saying that it's our fault. This is all due to our sin. That's not to take away Cain's responsibility that he murdered his brother, but we're talking about the original sin. If they had not sinned, this would not have happened, right? And so there's an ownership, I'm sure, that they must have felt there at the graveside of their son. It's all our fault. It's all due to our sin. Look at the mess that we've made sin. You know, it's three little words, three little, three little words, three little letters. I mean, it's such a, such a small word, isn't it, to describe such an indescribable anguish. God didn't want humans to have knowledge of sin, did he? He didn't want us to experience the knowledge of evil. He wanted to protect Adam and Eve. He wanted to protect us. He wanted to protect that relationship, right, between him and them and, and them and one another, right? He wanted to protect that perfect relationship, and so he gave them boundaries. 
But now they're intimately acquainted with sin and the consequences of it. And, and if that were the end of the story, we would be a very depressed, hopeless people, wouldn't we? But thank God that's not the end of the story. The perished kingdom. We've gone from the perfect kingdom that God had created in Genesis 1 and 2 to the perished kingdom in, in chapter 3. But it's not the end of the story. We don't stay there. Because we already looked at, was it last week, we talked about in Ephesians chapter 1, that before the foundation of the world, before time began, God had already set in motion a plan to reestablish his kingdom, to rescue a people through his son who would be the king. Adam failed in his role as the king. And so God would send another king who would not fail and he would rescue his people and he would reestablish his kingdom. Now, now, that's not to say that God doesn't take sin seriously, because God does take sin seriously. God is just. And that means that God, because he is perfectly holy and he is a just God, he cannot overlook sin. He has to deal with sin. And so he could not overlook, he could not excuse Adam and Eve's sin, he could not excuse their rebellion, their treason. And I use those words like treason for us to understand, to appreciate the gravity of their sin. This was no small thing that they did. They rebelled against the sovereign God, against the king of the universe. They, as his subjects, says, we will not have you rule over us. We want to rule ourselves. This was no small thing. And God just can't overlook that. He can't just wink at sin. And so their sin is rightly met by a just God as he meets out divine judgment upon them, right? And they experience the consequences of their sin. And there's this theme that, that's introduced there in Genesis chapter 3 toward the end of the chapter, which dominates the Bible and it dominates eternity to remind us of the seriousness of sin and that God is just and he can't just wink at sin. And it's this theme that we, we read about in the book of Hebrews in chapter 9, verse 22. It says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no removal. There is no forgiveness of sin right? This is how serious sin is, that it's going to require the shedding of blood to deal with it. Someone, something is going to have to die because of Adam and Eve's sin, our sin, the shedding of blood. You say, well, I don't, I don't see any blood in chapter three. I see some consequences there for Adam and Eve, and they're very serious consequences, but I don't see any blood. Look at verse 21 if you've got your Bibles open there into chapter 3. You remember that Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they hid from God and they sewed fig leaves together, right, to cover their nakedness, to cover because they're now aware of sin. 
They've got a knowledge of sin they didn't have before and they're ashamed. They know that they have sinned. And God in his kindness and in his grace, he comes to the garden and he seeks them out, right? A people that have rebelled against the holy God and he seeks them out. And what does he do after he meets out consequences to them? Before he drives them out of the garden, what does he do there in verse 1? It says, the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. It doesn't say the word blood there, but we do know that an innocent animal, this is the first mention of death in the Bible, and it's right after sin. That God goes and he slays some innocent animal. We don't know what animal it was, but he slays an animal and he removes the skins from that animal so that he might clothe his people, cover their nakedness because they had done such an inadequate job of it themselves. We, We can't cover our sin. We need God to cover our sin. And our sin can only be covered through blood. This is how serious the sin of the Garden of Eden is. It requires the death of an innocent substitute to cover our sins. Only the shedding of blood can destroy the effects of sin. Only blood can redeem us and reconcile us to God. And notice that it wasn't Adam and Eve's blood. Why? Because they're sinners. God needs something perfect, something righteous, something holy. But the important question is, who will come? And this is just a, a foreshadowing, if you will, of someone else who would come and shed their blood. Who will come and shed their blood to cover their sins and our sins and destroy the evil in this world? Well, the good news is that human sin is met by divine judgment. Consequences are meted out. They're driven out of the garden. But it's also met by divine mercy. So he does not leave Adam and Eve without hope. He makes this promise to them. And the promise comes as he's cursing the serpent. He's meeting out consequences on the serpent, on Satan, who's deceived Adam and Eve. And he says to them in Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, Satan, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And her offspring, he shall bruise your head. He shall crush your head. He shall inflict a mortal wound upon you. He shall destroy you. And you shall bruise his heel. In other words, he's talking to the serpent, right? The the serpent will strike with his fangs. And he will strike and, and inflict a wound upon the offspring of the woman. And blood would be shed, wouldn't it? From that from that serpent's bite, if you will. And of course, this is the first mention we have in the Bible of the good news of the promise to come. Yes, Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden. Yes, they will become intimately acquainted with the consequences of their sin. 
but they are not left without hope. And this is, I don't know about you, but as I read this, I mean, it is so completely unexpected, right? That that God would give them this hope. I, I mean, I wonder if Adam and Eve expected after they had sinned against him, they're hiding from him, they've covered themselves up with, with fig leaves, and, and, and I wonder if they expected God to show up and to say to them, in light of your treason against me, aligning yourselves with the enemy in an attempt to overthrow me, in light of what you've done, I'm declaring war against you and I will annihilate you. That's what I would expect. And I would rightly expect that, right? Because the wages of sin is death. But instead, God says something to them so unexpected, something so incredibly gracious, something so wonderfully merciful. He says to them basically, yes, you have rebelled against me. Yes, you have rejected me. And you have done this evil, this horrible wickedness. But I'm going to war against the enemy. I'm going to war against Satan. On your behalf, he wants to do you great harm, but I'm going to drive a wedge between his seed and your seed. He's determined to take you down with him, but I'm going to go to war on your behalf. Man, what, think about this. What, what a wonderful God that's willing to wage war on behalf of a people who have rebelled against him. Have you stopped to think about that? And to appreciate that, I think if we don't stop to think about it and appreciate it, then I don't think we really rightly see that we're sinners and that we're in need of judgment. It's hard to appreciate his forgiveness and his grace if we don't understand what we're truly deserving of. We deserve God's wrath poured out against us. And God stoops his knee. He bends himself to us. And he opens his arms to us and says, look, I'm for you. I'm not against you, even though you have done this horrible, evil wickedness against me. That he is willing to stage a rescue operation on behalf of people like you and me. Isn't that incredibly wonderful and good that he would do that? So God declares war on our enemy, on, on Satan. And, and notice that God's strategy, it's not conventional warfare, is it? I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I would expect that if he's going to declare war on the enemy, that, that he might, you know, uh, call for a horde of angels, right? And just say, hey, sick him. And just whip Satan, you know, and just throw him in the, you know, into, into, into hell, into the abyss and leave him there forever. Or, or that he might, you know, in a, in a display of his omnipotence and his power, that he might just go and just vaporize him, right? But he doesn't do that, right? His, his strategy is so unconventional, so unexpected. And here's his strategy. 
I'm going to put enmity, hatred, hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. In other words, what he's saying is there's going to be this ongoing battle between Satan's offspring and the woman's offspring. And that Satan's defeat and our deliverance would come through the seed of the woman. That somewhere down the line, she's going to have a child. That someone in her genealogy is going to be the one who is going to defeat and overthrow the enemy. That's so completely unexpected. And so in that promise, though, that promise of hope that's given to Adam and Eve before they're escorted out of the garden, that one day he is going to rescue them, one day he's going to restore his kingdom, he tells them that there's going to be this ongoing battle between the two seas. And that battle begins very quickly, doesn't it? As we pick up in chapter 4 of Genesis with Adam and Eve's offspring, the two lines, Cain and Abel. And we see the ongoing battle, the ungodly line and the godly line. The ungodly seed and the godly seed. Cain, obviously, of the ungodly line and he kills Abel. And you can see right there the beginning of the battle and it's Satan's attempt to destroy the hope, the promise that God has made to Adam and Eve to bring a rescuer. If I can destroy the godly line of, of Abel, then there can be no rescuer who will come and all humanity will suffer the same fate as the enemy, right? And we will remain in his clutches. So Cain kills Abel. And it seems that with the death of Abel that the promise appears to be as good as dead. But it's not. God in his grace at the end of chapter 4 gives Adam and Eve another son, Seth, right? And it's said there in chapter 4, verse 25-ish, somewhere around there, that at that time the people began to call on the name of the Lord. So there's this infusion of hope again, right? That there's a godly line, that it, it remains, the enemy didn't snuff out God's promise. But then again, you get to chapter 6, and we see the promise is in jeopardy. And you see that throughout the whole Bible is up until, even, even at, up until the crucifixion, it seems like the promise is so fragile, doesn't it? It's at, it's at, you know, it, at any point, it could collapse always in jeopardy. In chapter 6, the ungodly line of Cain intermarries with the godly line of, 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 of uh, Seth, and the godly line is corrupted. Mankind is permeated with wickedness, we're told, and God determines he's going to destroy mankind. And he says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land for I am sorry I have made them and once again it seems that the godly line the promise is in danger of extinction right but God made a promise in Genesis 3:15, didn't he God made a promise and he is faithful to his word God cannot lie. 
He always keeps his promises. And so we, the very next thing after you hear that God is going to destroy the world by the flood, right? Blot out man from under, under his face. Then it says, but Noah found grace, right? And we see that God preserves Noah, his three sons, and their, his wife and their wives, so that what happens? So the godly line of Seth survives the flood. The ungodly line of Cain is destroyed in the flood. And here's the question. Why, why did God determine to save Seth's line? Why, why did Noah find grace? What was, was Seth's line, was it somehow, were they better? Were they better people than Cain, than his line? You know, we talked about that last week, right? God didn't save Noah because he was a just man, because he was a perfect man, because he was a righteous man. God saved Noah, but he found grace. And the result of grace is that Noah became a righteous man. Noah became a godly man because of grace. But Noah was no different than the rest of the people at the time of the flood. God sought him out. You could say that grace found Noah. Noah didn't find grace, right? He didn't seek it out himself. God is the one who seeks out. And it's because of this simple truth that God is determined to restore his kingdom. And what is his kingdom? It's to have a people in his presence, under his rule, who enjoy his blessings. And God is committed to that plan to restore his kingdom. And so then when you get to Genesis 11, guess what happens? After the flood and, and Noah and his family, they've, they've been faithful, you know, to be fruitful and multiply. It's a recreation, if you will, the ungodly lines. But guess what? Sin continues on. I won't get into the details of that, but you can go back and read chapters 9 and 10 and see the sin continues on. And we get to Genesis chapter 11, and guess what? The promise is in jeopardy again. You feel like you're on a roller coaster throughout the Bible when you think about You have the promise in your mind that God is committed to this promise, but yet, oh, it's like it's gonna, he's not going to be able to keep it again. The enemy is, he is, you know, he's tricksy. Genesis chapter 11, remember God had told Noah and his family be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. In other words, go out, disperse, right? And what do the people in chapter 11 do at the Tower of Babel? They are rebellious. They are disobedient. They don't disperse. They come together. And they determined to have their own little kingdom. And we will have a tower. We'll build a tower that can reach the heavens. We'll, we're going to rule ourselves. And they wanted to make a name for themselves, to exalt themselves above God. And that's the cry of the sinful human heart, that we will not have this man rule over us. We rule. Nobody tells us what to do. That's the Tower of Babel in a nutshell. Let me ask you this. Is that your cry? That we will not have this man rule over us? Because if that's 
our cry of our heart, then you need to understand this. Then it results in not being under his lordship. It means not being a subject of the king. And it means not enjoying the kingdom blessings and the kingdom relationship with the king of kings who wants to forgive and wants to rescue and wants to reconcile him, ourselves to him. And it means being not enjoying his blessings, but experiencing the curse. Or is your cry like the tax collector there up on the temple mount with the Pharisee and the, and the tax collector says, you know, he beats upon his breast and he couldn't even open his eyes to look at God. And he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Listen, God delights to show mercy. He delights to show mercy to sinners like you and me. Sinners like Adam and Eve. Sinners like Noah, right? Not because we deserve it. We don't deserve it. We deserve his wrath. Well, the folks at the Tower of Babel, they didn't want God to rule over them. And so we see the only thing that they can receive when they don't want God to rule over them is judgment. So he confuses their languages and he scatters them abroad because if they can't talk to one another, God is going to have his way one way or the other. God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. If you won't do it willingly, then I'm going to help you do it unwillingly, right? So he confuses their language. So now they can't talk to one another. Now they have to disperse in their own little people, groups, and nations. And the chapter ends with sin and judgment. And it seems once again, doesn't it, that the promise is in jeopardy. We just had Noah, the flood, and now the Babel incident. But then God's mercy shows up in the most surprising way in the opening verses that we read this morning in Genesis chapter 12. God calls this man by the name of Abram. His name means father, and later he changed his name to Abraham, father of a multitude, father of many. And he tells Abraham basically this, that I'm going to reverse the effects of the judgment at Babel. The people are scattered, but I'm going to bring them back because I want to bring them into a kingdom. I want to rescue them, and I want to bless them. And I'm going to use you. And the promises that I make to you to bring that about. And I want you to notice this. What does it says in verse 12? Now the Lord said to Abram. Notice that it's God who takes the initiative here, right? To mount this rescue operation. Abraham's not there on his knees praying, God, I live in this sinful world. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst people with unclean lips like Isaiah said, right? No, Abraham's not doing that. Abraham's not praying. He's not asking the Lord to rescue the people. They're lost and he's got this burden on his heart. No, he's not even looking for God. God initiates this whole thing. He takes the initiative to mount this rescue operation. Abraham's not seeking God out. He's not even looking for God. He's no different than Adam and Eve hiding from God, right? They're not looking for him. Abraham wasn't looking for him. Noah wasn't looking for him. 
because that's what the Bible says about all of us. The psalmist says it in Psalm 14. Paul says it in Romans chapter 3. There are none who seek God. I don't seek him. Left to myself, I, will never, I would never seek him. Left to yourself, you would never search out God. It's against our nature as fallen, sinful people. If there's going to be any rescue operation, it will be done by divine initiative and not human initiative. That's why Jesus said in Luke chapter 19, 10, he says, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Which again is good news. And it shows us his commitment to his promise. He is going to bring about his promise. Here's a question. Why did God choose Abraham? Why did he choose Abraham to be the one that he would bless the world through? And ultimately what he's saying here is that you're going to be the one that I'm going to bring the king through, the Messiah through, the Savior through, through your line. Why? Why Abraham? I mean, I would imagine most of us have a very high opinion of Abraham. I mean, he's this, no doubt he is this towering figure in biblical history, right? No other Old Testament person besides Moses is mentioned in the New Testament as often as Abraham. So he is this towering figure. And we all picture him as this grandfatherly type of a, of a guy, right, down to earth and gentle, kind of a man. You know, he's a kind man with high moral fiber and that, I think we've said this before, that we would trust leaving our children with him, right? Because we know that the kind of guy that Father Abraham is, he's going he's gonna to read them stories, Right? He's going to read them the Chronicles of Narnia, maybe the Lord of the Rings. He's going to sit down and watch VeggieTales with them. He's going to take them out driving in his pilot SUV and listen to Adventures of Odyssey. I say that just because my son-in-law thinks that I hate VeggieTales and Adventures of Odyssey. I actually like them. Oh, Mr. Whitaker. I'm sorry. I just do that to irritate him. You know, and then when they get done, he brings them home. They're going to gather around the little, you know, fire pit in the backyard. And he, they're going to, he's going to sing Father Abraham with them. He had many sons and many sons had father. You know, that's the kind of guy that we think that, that Abraham is. And, but that's not the Bible's view of him. You remember Joshua there at the end of his life. Children of Israel have gone into the promised land and they've conquered a lot of the enemies within the land of Canaan and, and they've divided up the land and each tribe has gotten its allotment and he brings them all back together there at Shechem and, 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 he, and he tells them, he's like, look, you know, you guys still are worshiping a lot of false gods, you know, that you all did that when you're in Egypt and you haven't really gotten over that. And, and, and uh, he said, look, you all need to decide today who, who you're going to, are you, you want to continue to worship these gods? And he, and he brings back up, he recalls their history. He says, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates River. And Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, Abraham's brother, they served other gods. You remember that whole famous passage? And he says, but as for, you know, choose this day whom you're going to serve, whether those gods 
But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord, right? But he brings back up, he recalls their history, and he says, our history is that we are a people, Abraham and his people. Before God saved him, they worshiped other gods. Now, what's that tell us? That Abraham didn't come from a good Bible-believing home, did he? That he was an idolater. He was a sinner. And yet, graciously chosen by God of no merit on Abraham's part, not account of any goodness on Abraham's part, but chosen on account of God's grace, just like Noah, just like you and me. And so God chooses Abraham, and he makes this wonderful promise to him. And the promise basically says this, that God is determined to rescue a people and to restore a king, his kingdom through his promised seed that he made to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. So real quickly, and then I'm going to wrap be done. He gives them four elements. He gives Abraham four elements to the promise. And the first one has to do with a place. You think, kind of figure out where this is going to go. The promise he makes is about a place. It's about a people under God's rule and enjoying God's blessing. That's what Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is. And it's kind of reiterated and expounded upon in Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 17. But he says this to him in chapter 12, verse 1. He says to Abram, he says, Go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And in verse 7, he says, And I will give you a land. Well, what land is he talking about? Chapter 17 tells us, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourn, the land that you've been pitching tents in, you've been going north to south, east to west in, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. That's the land that I'm giving to you, Abraham. Now, I don't know about you, when I read this and you think about the land of Canaan, you got to ask, why Canaan? You ever been to Israel? If you go there, you're going to say, why? Why did he choose? I mean, agriculturally, God could have given them a better land. He could have left them in the land of Goshen there in Egypt. It was a better land, more fertile than the land of Canaan. The climate, the terrain of, of the land of Canaan, it's, it's just like the Antelope Valley. It is. The, the rabbis had this saying about... Uh, about um, the land of Canaan. They said that when God created the world, that he had some, uh, you know, had a spare handful of rocks left over. So he just tossed it out and that became the land of Canaan. It is a rocky land. The fact that they can grow anything over there is to me, it's a miracle of God anyway. But it's not the best land. But God's choice of Canaan was intentional and it was central to his redemptive mission. Think about where Canaan about where Israel sits. It's at this major crossroads, especially at that time, this major crossroads, this major trade route connecting Europe and Asia and Africa. And what is God doing here? This is chapter 12. It follows chapter 11. People at Babel are scattered. How are we going to reach these people? Well, Abraham, I'm going to put you in this prime location so that you're on this major trade route so that you can reach these people as they're moving about so that you can share the good news with them, right? So that's the purpose of this land. And I'm going to press on and we'll develop that more at another time, but 
And who are these descendants that Abraham, the descendants of Abraham that God promised this land to? He says, I will make you, verse 2, a great nation. In chapter 17, he says, I will establish my covenant between you, between me and you and your offspring and throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be their God. So who are Abraham's descendants that this everlasting possession is promised to? Is it going to be Isaac and Ishmael? Those were his two descendants, right? But not all of his descendants dwelt in the promised land, did they? Ishmael, he became the father of the Arab people. He didn't remain in the promised land. He didn't inherit the promised land. Esau, his grandson, Jacob's brother, he departed from the land. You remember that Jesus' time, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they claimed to be Abraham's offspring, Abraham's children, right? That's what they said. We're Abraham's children. He said, you're not. He said, you are your father, the devil. He said, because if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works that Abraham did. What was the work that Abraham did? He believed. He believed in God. He believed that there was going to be a promised king to come. And the Pharisees didn't believe that. Remember, they rejected Christ and they crucified him. So who is this everlasting possession promised to? I think first and foremost, we need to understand what Paul says in Galatians 3.16, that the offspring that he was speaking of here is singular, not plural. And the offspring, he says, is Christ. That's the offspring that this promise is made to. He's the one who's going to come, and he's going to rescue. And as he rescues, he's going to bring a people into union with him. He's going to reconcile a people to himself so that... Paul goes on to say that if you are Christ, in other words, if you trust in him, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. So if you're a believer today, this promise was made concerning you and concerning me. And the third element is that God makes a promise to Abraham to bless I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that's an important thing. That's not just some little addendum there at the end that all the families in the earth will be blessed. It was always God's intention, not just for this to be a Jewish thing, an Israel thing, but all the nations, right? That's why he puts them in Canaan. They're at the crossroads. So these scattered people, as they come through, that Abraham and his people could tell, the God, those that the king rescues can tell others the good news, that there's a God who loves them and, who's, and who wants to rescue them and to redeem them so that you can enjoy his blessings. And then we get to go out and tell that to others too. That was always God's plan. And the last element of the promise that God made to Abraham in verse 8 of chapter 17 says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And so this implies that there will be a king who rules, a people who gladly submit to this king, and a sphere where this rule takes place. And the sphere is bigger than a geographical plot of land called Israel today, right? It's bigger than that. It's the whole world. 
It's where you live. It's where I live. It's where I work, where you work. It's our families. That's the sphere of his reign. It's our lives. To put it another way, God is promising Abraham that he's going to restore the kingdom of God. This is the promise, Genesis 3.15. He expounds on it in Genesis 12.15 and 17 so that we have God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing. And none of this can take place unless God sends the promised seed, the promised offspring that he made in, to, to, to Eve in Genesis 3.15, the offspring who will shed his blood and pay the costly price for our sin. And that's where we close and Tim comes up and Jason and lead us in the time of celebrating that that king has come and he has shed his blood for the remission of our sin. And we are, if you're a believer in Christ, a recipient of that. And we invite you today as we take communion, the elements are passed out. If you're a believer in Christ, your hope, your trust is in Christ alone. Celebrate with us. If you're not yet there and you don't yet believe that he's the king who God promised in Genesis 3.15 and expounded on to Abraham, just let it pass by. It's okay. Don't be embarrassed. We're not judging you. We once didn't take communion either until God rescued us and saved us. A fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood. Blue